on October 27th, 1963, or actually 1964, in a nationally televised speech, a Hollywood movie star who for the first 30 years of his adult life had been an active member of one political party and who had recently switched from the, to the opposing party, he spoke these words. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. That speech came in the midst of the, the rising threat of communism, with America uh, being drawn into the Vietnam War, with our, our country seemingly uh, losing the, the space race to the Soviet Union, against the, the backdrop of, of the civil rights movement, and with multiple other serious issues affecting our national and international world. And they're a chilling reminder of the great fragility of freedom. America's five basic freedoms, they're articulated in the First Amendment. There's the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of the press, and the freedom to petition our government. And, and these are, are freedoms that, 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 that we love, freedoms for which people have, have sacrificed and died to keep. And they are only guaranteed if those freedoms and those who resent, re represent them choose to revere them and to make the great sacrifices that come from passing them on to the next generation. And if we take them for granted or we lose sight of their value or we allow them to be diminished by those who thirst for power, or we simply fail to teach those precious truths to our children, that freedom will be gone in a generation. But freedom isn't the only thing that's a, a, a generation away from being lost. That, that same uh, truth that was expressed in that quote holds true for the life-giving gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If God's people, that, that's you and, and that's me, if we take the gospel for granted, if we're content with, with our own salvation and are apathetic to, to share and be gracious and intentional in communicating that, that gospel to another generation, if we bow to our culture's demands to, to keep uh, our, our religion in our, in our own little private cloister, if we order the message of the gospel and of God's word to appease our fickle, sin-loving, God-loathing, sexual culture, we will be complicit in empowering the evil one to veil the life-giving, sin-forgiving, grace-reconciling gospel from our children like Judah and one day Judah's children. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we continue our, 
series through the, uh, the books of Timothy. Uh, last week, we wrapped up 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy. We're on our way today to go through 2 Timothy. And uh, we'll be examining all of chapter 1, which we're going to read together in a moment. But before I do that, uh, let me give you just a, a little bit of, of background on uh, what was happening when the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned his second letter to Timothy. In, 19, or in, 16, or in 64 AD, roughly 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, a massive fire broke out in the capital city of Rome. It completely destroyed 13, or three of uh, the uh, 14 districts that were in Rome. Totally destroyed them. It, it uh, partially destroyed eight others. It killed hundreds of people. Displaced thousands of others. And the blame for the fire was uh, heaped upon the deranged Roman emperor at the time whose name was Nero. And the citizens believed that that Nero uh, burned the city intentionally because he didn't like the architecture of the city. And he wanted to have a, a clean slate to work with. Now, in order to shift the blame, what, what Nero does is Nero instead finds a, a scapegoat, and he blames uh, the growing Christian community in Rome of setting the fire, and he systematically begins uh, this persecution that leads to the uh, arrest, torture, and death of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians. Nero would... Uh, light his gardens by dipping Christians in tar and lighting them on fire. He would uh, take them and place them in the, the Colosseum to uh, be eaten by lions. He would take their arms and wrap ropes around them and, and tie each arm to, uh, to uh, horses and, and run the horses in opposite directions. Now, the Apostle Paul... He was the primary leader of the Christian church. And so Nero has him arrested. He's imprisoned in Rome in this horrific subterranean dungeon where he ultimately awaits an audience with Nero who is going to make a decision whether or not Paul will live or die. Now Paul, as he prepares to write this letter, he is in a very, very, very bad way. He was being held in a house of horrors. Death for him is knocking at the doorstep. People are actively persecuting his fellow Christians. False teachers have invaded the, the churches that he has planted, and all of, all of his life's work is in jeopardy. And some of his friends have abandoned him. And so it's with this context, knowing that he did not have much time to live, that Paul pens this letter to his beloved ministry partner, Timothy. It's this letter that we know as 2 Timothy. 
And unlike Paul's first letter to Timothy, which was basically like, hey, Timothy, this is the way you need to structure the church. Uh, you need to have some uh, elders, and you need to set up deacons, and you need to, uh, you know, this is how you manage stuff basically in the church. Second Timothy is this deeply personal letter that is all about how Timothy should lead the church as it engages the pagan culture around them. So with that background, let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you or an apple on your phone, please make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. On the Bibles that we provide, I believe you'll find them on page 995. And if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as, I did, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now have been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that have, you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom Figilus and Hermagaeus, or Hermogenes, may the Lord, uh, uh, whom among me are Figilus and Hermogenes, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onisorus, for he has refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of God 
You may be seated. So here's the big idea that, that I hope to communicate today. We'll put it on the screen, and it says that God has entrusted us with the gospel, and it's empowered us to remain faithful to the gospel despite opposition from our culture. And we're going to break this out in, in basically four simple principles. Number one is this. God's call affirms us in this task. God has a, has a call on my life and a call on your life to communicate the gospel to others. And, and, and he affirms us in that calling. Number two, God's provision empowers us. We, we don't have to figure this out on our own. We don't have to use our own strength. God is providing that for us. Number three, the gospel sustains us. This is hard work. There is opposition to the gospel. And, and, and the gospel itself will sustain us as we communicate it. And then number four, God's spirit stands with us. We do not have to do this ourselves. So let's look at the first one. God's call affirms us. Have you ever had someone who came alongside you and invested in you? Someone who was perhaps uh, important in, in the realm where you live, so, someone who was talented, someone who, who took the time uh, to teach you, someone who took the time to, to guide you, to, to help you to become more than you ever thought that you could actually be. Someone who believes in you even when you don't necessarily believe in yourself. Now, that could have been a parent, could have been a, a, a grandparent, a, perhaps a, a sibling or a coach or a teacher, uh, the mom or dad of, of, of maybe your friend, maybe it was even your boss. Timothy's got someone like that. His name is Paul, and Paul, he was a huge deal. In 2 Timothy 1, first verse and second verse, we read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in verse 1, the apostle Paul reaffirms that he is actually an apostle. Now, we live in a culture where where uh, in, in church at times, the, the term apostle gets thrown around uh, a lot. People like say, like, I'm an apostle Wilma, or I'm an apostle Jones, or whatever. But in the Bible, there's some very specific qualifications to actually be an apostle. I'm going to give you two. There's actually three. The third one is that, that you need to be uh, martyred. But we'll leave that one out for the time being, all right? So here are the first two. First one is this, that, that you have had to see the risen Jesus with your own eyes. You had, to, you had to be there when Jesus was risen from the dead. You had to see him with your eyes. Number two, you had to be commissioned directly for ministry by Jesus. In the New Testament, there are 15 people who meet that qualification. Perhaps 16. That's it. Paul is one of them. 
He is one of, of 15 or 16 individuals who have seen Jesus, the risen Jesus, with his own eyes, who have been commissioned by Jesus. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to pour his life in this young guy by the name of Timothy. And that, brothers and sisters, is a big deal. When I was in seminary, uh, I, I worked in a, in a church, and uh, I, I went to uh, a place called Weinbrenner Theological Seminary in Finley, Ohio. And you're like, what is that? And uh, I'm with you, okay? In Weinbrenner, uh, or in Finley, there, there were, were two things named Weinbrenner. One was the theological seminary. The other was the old folks' home. Yeah, not good. And so, uh, you know, I go to this very humble, very modest center. It was a good place for me. But I'm working in this church, and, and there is a, a, the pastor there, his name is Adam. Adam has graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, where our beloved Pastor Ben went. Dallas Theological Seminary is the pinnacle of seminaries in America. You've you got to be super smart to be able to go to that place, and you've got to be crazy dedicated to be able to survive that place. Adam graduated number two in his class. When he would uh, preach, study for preaching, he, he would use the Greek New Testament, not the translation. He would translate it himself. And Adam, he takes me under his wing. And so uh, one day he says to me, I'm, I'm like, the, I, he basically preaches, I do everything else. And he, he says to me one Tuesday morning at a staff meeting, he says, Mike, uh, we're going to have baptisms this weekend, and I want you to baptize the people. I'm like, I'm a part-time seminary student. The, these folks, they've known you for years. There's like six of them, you know. They, they don't want Mike Leonzo baptizing them. And so Adam's, and, and I think I've told you about him before, he's like a Seinfeld, or he's like a Kramer on Seinfeld. I mean, that's kind of his mannerisms. And uh, he's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> and so I feel like I've dodged the bullet. And, and the whole week goes by, I hear, he doesn't say anything. On, on Saturday morning, the, the telephone rings. And this is back in the day when the phone actually hung on the wall. And so I pick up the phone, and I say, hello, and this is what I hear. Upon your profession of faith and obedience to the Lord's command, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you got that? <laughs> I'm like, yes, sir. Good. Then you're baptizing them. Click. That's exactly what happened. So we do the baptisms, it goes well. The people are very kind to me. They are super kind to me. I'm, I'm like 32 years old at the time. And afterwards, Kathy goes up to Adam. And she says, Pastor Adam, why did you have Mike baptize those people? And he said this. He said, one day Mike is going to become, his church will become more than what our church is. And then he said this. And I want to be able to brag that I, it was in my church that he first baptized somebody. <laughs> but here, Adam's a big deal. He's a huge, in, in that community, he's a huge deal. 
And, and he's pouring himself into little old me. And here Paul is doing that in Timothy's life. And what does he call Timothy? He says, you are my beloved child. And to, to do such a thing demonstrates that, that God has got a call on Timothy's life. And this special call gets affirmed in a couple places in verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. You see, not only had the sovereign God placed Paul in Timothy's life, God had sovereignly given Timothy a grandma and a mom who loved Jesus and who loved Timothy enough to pour Jesus into Timothy's life. And many of you know what it is to have a blessing of a godly lineage. Many of you know what it's like to have a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa who surrendered their life to Jesus and who passionately loved God's word and God's people and God's church, whose love was genuine, who abhorred what was evil, who held fast to that which was good, who, who loved others with brotherly or sisterly affection, who sought to outdo others in showing honor, who was fervent in spirit, who served the Lord. Who, they're like genuine Christian people. And they poured themselves into your life. Now, this does not happen by accident. God in his sovereignty and his graciousness, he intentionally inserts these people into our lives. He, he does amazing things. He drops them into to your life. And, and, and there, there are people who come and help us to come to faith in Christ, who, who help us gain a deep love for God's word, who give us a, help develop a heart inside of us to actually not serve ourselves, but to serve other people who nurture a passion in our lives to be able to communicate the gospel. And he does that for many reasons, not the least of which is so that we know that we are his and that he will never, ever let us go. And he also does that because it is easy to doubt God's called on our lives. It's, it's easy to, to be overwhelmed by the, the chaos of the world. It's easy to, to cave under the pressure of this secular culture that we live in and abandon the call that God has on each of our lives. But when we reflect on what God has done in the past and, and how he has placed people into our lives, we're reminded that we are his and that he's got a plan and a purpose for our lives despite overwhelming odds. And that is where Timothy finds himself. He's in, 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 a, in a culture that is going insane. And he's facing overwhelming odds. The, the persecution in, in Rome specifically it, is going crazy. I mean... What would it be like, here you are, you're pastoring a church, persecution is happening in Rome, you're in Ephesus, it's coming your way, you're hearing that people you love have been burned to death, 
And you got to be like, I don't know if I want to be involved in this. I, I don't know whether I, I, I can handle this. You, there, there are false teachers in your church. You're trying to communicate the gospel with, with truth and integrity and humility. And, and there are other people in your church, perhaps, who are, are better uh, speakers than you or more passionate than you. And they're communicating a false truth. And you're up against that pressure. The culture that he's ministering in becomes more and more secularized every day, more and more sexualized with every passing day. All of this very similar to what we're living in at the present moment. Yet in the midst of this all, God's got a call on Timothy's life. And Paul has affirmed that. And with that, Paul then, once he accomplishes it, once Timothy understands, yes, God's got a purpose for me. He's got a plan for me. Once he understands that, Paul takes him down a path. And now he wants him to understand, God is going to provide for you. And he's going to provide for us. Look again at verses 6 and 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, from what we know about Timothy, extremely unlikely leader. When you read uh, the New Testament, it gives you a couple clues about who Timothy was as a person. Number one, we know that he's young. He's probably under 30 years old. We know that he has health issues, and if that wasn't enough, we know that he was somewhat fearful and timid. And so with that in mind, Paul reminds him of something. He reminds him that that the Spirit of God actually is living inside of Timothy. Despite his age, despite his health issues, despite uh, that his personality is timid, this Spirit is inside of him. And it's the same Spirit that that God gave to his first disciples in Acts chapter 1 when we read this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's the same spirit that Paul reminds the Christians living in Rome that raised Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about this for a moment. The very power that raised Christ from the dead, lives inside of you. Lives inside of you and inside of me. And yet yet we hold back. We get afraid. There is amazing power, godly power, inside of those who have repented their sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So inside of this young, fearful, frail man resided the all-powerful Spirit of God, and the time had come for Timothy to set aside his fear and to live in the power and the love and the self-control that flows out of the Spirit of God. It's a power that will allow him to conquer everything that he is afraid of and to boldly engage his culture with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the love 
that allows him to do that in a manner that doesn't steamroll people. In a gracious and kind manner where, where we share the love of Christ, the truth of Christ, in a way that is winsome and kind. Not, not slamming people over the head with it, but confident that, that God does the work, that he goes before us. And it is this self-control which allows him to engage in any situation and, 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 and not freak out. And so here we are. And for those of us in this room who have repented of our sins, received Christ as Lord and Savior, that spirit's inside of us. And we need to live inside the power of God. We need not fear the chaos of this culture. We do not have to be afraid of it. We don't have to stick our, our, our heads in a hole. We don't have to run away uh, to the farthest reaches of America because we're worried about things self-imploding or being persecuted for our faith. We don't need to be fear to be rejected or, or ostracized or marginalized because we're Christ followers. That, that's coming. I mean, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I don't know why we get so, we, we want everybody to like us. You don't have, we don't have to be liked. We don't need to do things that are unlikable. We don't have to intentionally inflame people. But we need to know when we come with someone with a life-giving gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will encounter opposition because we are beating up against the gates of hell. That's what we're doing. And we need not fear those who attempt to intimidate us and keeping our faith out of the public arena. We don't need to be afraid of that. We need to engage. And if they have a problem with it, it's their problem. It's not the church's problem. And we need to flame, fan into flame the spirit of God that lives inside of us. We, we have to be not just merely content with I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. We got to give a rip about the person next door who's a complete pain in the tail. We got to give a rip about the, the co worker and, and the, the friends who are facing a Christless eternity. I mean, think about that for a moment. Apart from Christ, they will face an eternity in hell. And some of us, we're just like, I'm good, I'm fine, I don't care about the other person. Maybe we're not that cynical about it, but that's what our actions do many times. And may we embrace the power of God's Spirit, which empowers us to wildly love those who don't love Jesus. To, to reach out to people who, who are marginalized. Who, who, who seem to be scary or whatever it looks like, and, and to love them and to live lives of self-discipline that don't stray. And may we live out the words of the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. I had to call Bongo for this quote, okay? Because this is a quote Bongo would typically give you, not me, all right? This is from Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher. This is what he says. If sinners be damned, in other words, if sinners are going to hell, he goes, at least let them leap to hell 
over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Might we live like people like that? This is, this is why 140 years in the future, Charles Spurgeon is remembered. Because he has this passion for those who don't know Jesus. Now, it's one thing to tell someone not to fear, but when suffering and persecution are a daily reality, when your friend and mentor is facing certain execution, folks, a little bit of cheerleading isn't going to help you. There's got to be something more. And the something more that Paul gives Timothy is this. He reminds Timothy of that which saved him. He reminds him of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says this in verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to be a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord Je our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day that which has been entrusted to me. See, Paul is reminding Timothy that the gospel has sustaining power. So why does Paul have to tell Timothy not to be ashamed of the life and teachings of Jesus and not to be ashamed of Paul who was in prison? Well, folks, prison is not necessarily something that people are normally proud about. And if it was the testimony, the teachings of Jesus that got Paul put into prison, well, perhaps that was something not to be proud of either. Allow me to illustrate. Uh, let's just say, now I'm an only child, so this is not a true illustration here, so disclosure right out of the chutes. Well, let's say I have a brother is so, who is so incredibly smart that he decides to use his intelligence to enrich in himself by taking advantage of others. And so he creates the, this uh, brilliant Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme. And as a result, he defrauds millions of dollars out of people, and his scheme is so clever that it goes on for years, but eventually his thievery catches up to him, and he ultimately resides in prison. And as his brother, the fact that he's in prison is not something that I'm going to be proud of, nor am I going to be proud of that he created this diabolical scheme to, to steal the last $3,000 from the 95-year-old grandmother who's living in Messiah Village, all right? I mean, it's nothing you're going to be proud of. And it's not something I'm going to face on, post on Facebook because it wouldn't make me look good and I don't have a brother and I don't use Facebook. So none of that would help either. 
But because Paul is in prison, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is what got him there, it would be natural for Timothy to be ashamed of that. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Now, this is a big ask. Why is it a big ask? If for no reason that many people were distancing themselves from Paul and fleeing from Christianity because they didn't want to find themselves languishing next to Paul in the subterranean prison in Rome. But Paul has an even bigger ask. He says, not only should you not be ashamed of me and not ashamed of the gospel, but I want you to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel just as I'm suffering. Now, you got to remember, Timothy is young, he's not in great health, and the dude is not overflowing with courage. He's just kind of this, this you know, not milk toast kind of person, but he's just kind of like blah, basically. And folks, suffering is not fun, especially when you're sickly and shy. It's not a pleasant thing. So Paul gives him a reason why he should be willing to suffer. And it's right there in 9 and 10. Timothy should be willing to suffer on Jesus' behalf. Why? Because Jesus has suffered on Timothy's behalf. Jesus has saved Timothy. He's called Timothy. And Jesus didn't do it because there was anything great about Timothy. That's the part that says, not because of our works in verse 9. Jesus saved Timothy and he's using Timothy. Why? Because of Jesus' purpose and Jesus' grace. And this is the reason why Timothy is to be unashamed of Paul's situation. And this is the reason why he should be willing to suffer for the testimony of God. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the whole concept of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's what saved Timothy. And it's the same gospel, folks, that has saved you and me. That God comes into the world and creates the world, and creates humanity. And humanity rebels against God, and the fall occurs. And then God begins this entire redemptive process that that starts in the Garden of Eden and culminates in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that God will ultimately come back, and Jesus will restore the creation that has been broken by sin. That is the beautiful overarching testimony of the Bible from the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation. And this plays out in the life of every Christian. And it's what empowered Timothy, and it's what empowers you and me to suffer for the cause of Christ. We can suffer, why? Because Jesus suffered for us. He died so that you and I might live. Now, Paul does this, and he he reminds him of all of these things. And now, here we are. We're living in this insane world, a world that is overflowing with lies, a world that is filled with all kinds of evil, a world where right is wrong, and up is down, and truth is relative, and godliness is ridiculed and celebrated. And as a result, we are surrounded now by pain and brokenness, which manifests itself 
and self-centeredness and anger. Have you ever wondered why people are so angry in our world right now? Our world's telling them you can do whatever the heck you want to do. But everybody seems to be upset and angry. I mean, we, that, that's what the, the call, that's the Bible, that's what Satan does. Satan says, hey, go and have fun. It's going to be great. And then all the wreck comes down upon your life. And everyone's going through this world right now, angry people. And so what happens here? We see all of this pain, all of this brokenness, all of this anger. We want to cut and run. We want to flee. We want to move to a faraway place. We want to isolate ourselves. Watch the world fall apart at a distance. And the idea of staying the course, experiencing rejection, experiencing suffering, isn't very appealing. But we stay engaged. And why do we stay engaged? Because we want for others what Jesus has given us. That's what we want. We're willing to be rejected and cast aside. Why? Because we want them to experience what we have experienced. In Romans 10, we read this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to stay engaged in this world because real people, our moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, our kids, our neighbors, they need Jesus. And if we don't show them Jesus, there is nobody who's going to show them Jesus. I came to faith in 1982 because I had Christian high school friends, Eric and Amy Boudelier, who would not give up on me. I was a, a foul-mouthed, F-bomb-dropping senior in high school trying to, to find any girl who was willing to date me. And Eric and Amy, they loved on me, and I didn't come to faith. But not much longer, I end up at college, in a Christian college, a place where I never, ever, ever wanted to be. Mom and Dad, I wish you would have saved money so that I could have went somewhere else, but you didn't. That's all right. That's where I got saved, so God had a plan, basically. But, but in college, there was Don Petzinger and Rob Evie, Christian guys who would not give on me. They were not afraid of listening to my doubts. They weren't intimidated by my arguments. They didn't get frustrated by my questions. They didn't crumble under my hostility. And they loved me despite all of my sin. And similarly, my mom and dad came to faith in Jesus Christ 12 years after that. Why? Because Jesus had saved me and he had saved Kathy and we wanted that from my mom and dad. And I preached to my mom and dad, and I encouraged my mom and dad, and, and, and I drove them crazy. We, one time, we were sitting in uh, the uh, cheesecake. You remember this, mom? We were sitting in the cheesecake factory in Redondo Beach where we lived. And I was preaching to my dad in the booth, and my dad was not happy with me. <laughs> he was highly unimpressed with me. But you know what? 
we kept loving them and loving them, and we got less obnoxious over the years, and they came to faith in Christ. And I would imagine for you, there are a list of people who didn't give up on you, and, and, and God used them to draw you to himself. And if he has done that for us, should we not do that for others? And make no mistake about it, when we start living out the gospel, especially in this culture, there will be opposition. And with opposition will come pain and suffering and persecution. And we're going to be misunderstood, and we're going to be misrepresented, and we're going to be mistreated, and it is going to hurt, and we will want to give up, but we don't because the gospel which saved us is the gospel which sustains us. And that brings us to my final point, the concluding remarks here, and it's this, that God's Spirit stands with us. Paul says this in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. You and I are called to be guardians. And and that word in the New Testament is used for people who guard the palace. That's one of the the places that it's used. And the other one is protecting possessions from thieves. That's kind of the context of that word guard. And when you guard something, you realize that it's not yours. You're protecting it for someone else. You and I don't have the privilege to alter that which we are guarding. We don't have the privilege or, 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 the, or the, uh, we're not allowed to, to damage it or to lose it. We're to keep it safe in pristine shape until the owner comes back to retrieve it. This is a huge job. But we're not alone. God's spirit is with us. And so we need not fear. In the words of pastor and theologian John Stott, he says this. May we see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel, everywhere spoken against. And the, or we may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel, everywhere spoken against. The apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increasing apostasy apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of its fathers. Do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be finally extinguished. True, he has committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle earthen vessels, and we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, and entrusting the deposit to our hands, he has not taken his own hands off of it. That God is with us as we do this work. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, is the hope of the world. There is, there is no plan B, folks. This is it. We are the hope of the world. And may you and I live like that hope. Let's pray. Dear God, you are good. I thank you for... Uh, your word, I thank you, Father, for how it has been faithfully passed down over the last uh, 2,000 years for the New Testament, dear God. And I pray, Father, that you would give me strength and you would strengthen my brothers and sisters here this day, Lord, to stand firm in the gospel, to lovingly communicate the truth, Lord, to be willing to suffer because, Lord, you are faithful. Thank you, Father, for uh, this gift of the Lord's Supper that you have given us. And Lord, now as we prepare to receive it, may we remember the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. 
Lord, as we handle this unleavened bread, may we think of your broken body. Lord God, as we, we handle the, the fruit of the vine, may we re remember and think upon your blood that was spilled on a brutal Roman cross. May we realize, Heavenly Father, that that sacrifice that your Son made for us, Lord, was because we have sinned. Lord, thank you that Jesus was sufficient to pay the infinite debt that we have created because he is the infinite Savior of the world. And Lord, it is through his risen name we pray. Amen and amen.